My name's Butch, I'm alcoholic. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. I want to uh, thank Dane and the committee for the opportunity and privilege of <clears throat> being here this weekend. When I say that, I'm not saying it because it sounds nice. I'm not saying it because I need you to like me. I'm saying it because I mean it from the very bottom of my heart. You see, I'm a guy who considers it a privilege to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a guy who considers it a privilege just to come here and be with you people, and I want to thank you for the opportunity and privilege of taking part in this thing this weekend. I, 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 uh, I want to welcome the newcomers. I, I was sitting there last night. I've, I've been to some Leonard Skinner conferences that weren't as enthusiastic as this bunch last night. I mean, that... Oh, 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 oh. Oh. And I'm sitting there thinking of those guys and gals for their first day. Oh. Oh. I gotta tell you, you got a lot more courage than I'd have had. I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous and stay here with us. It's an incredible journey. Uh, I, I, I came back when uh, uh, maybe 18 years, 17, 18 years ago. I was sober a couple of years. My sponsor brought me here and, and took me to Dr. Bob's house. And it wasn't opened. Uh, uh, Don Cassini opened the house for us and, and took us there. And I got to that front door, and I started to sob. I just started to sob. With a sense of gratitude and love for this thing beyond anything I've ever, ever felt. That was 18 years ago. Can you imagine how I feel this morning? How I feel this morning. And, 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 the, and the, the trick to the deal... Because I believe that there is probably literally millions of people who've walked through those doors and had that experience. And the thing is, is to hang on to it. To hang on to it. Because Scott mentioned last night in his talk, it's easy for me to forget. It's easy to forget. And I hang on to that experience. And I remember the fellow from Saskatchewan. I got a dear friend from Prince Albert, old Cease Coraville. And Cease told me a story many years ago of Bill Wilson telling him, Cease, don't ever lose your enthusiasm for Alcoholics Anonymous. And Cease said the same thing to me many years ago now, and I've never lost it. And I keep it by being here with you in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, doing the things that we've done this weekend and practicing these principles in our lives. And when we do that, it's an incredible journey, isn't it? Absolutely incredible journey. Uh, so this is really special for me. I'm a guy who, uh, Akron, you certainly know how to throw a party. <laughs> and alcoholics like to party. <laughs> I was saying to Scott, I was in Louisiana last week, and I said, I've never experienced that. They know how to do it down there. <laughs> Let me tell you, they don't hold a candle to you guys up here. <laughs> the incredible thing you've had here. So I want to uh, thank you for the opportunity and privilege of being here. I'm going to try and make this as short. It's been a lot of people have a long drive home and flights home and stuff. Don't you hate it when a talker stands up here and says, I'm going to keep it short? <laughs> you know you're in trouble. But I want to thank you for the invitation for Dee and I to come down and Eric and we drove down here. And it's just been an incredible experience, incredible experience for us. And uh, it's good. Uh, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about our program and our steps this weekend. We'll talk a little bit about that. And, 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 our, and our steps are designed, aren't they, to deflate our ego. Deflation of ego at death. Because that's our problem. And, 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 and I'll tell you something. If you're not working, you're brand new and haven't started on the steps, or you're, you've been here a while, aren't you? you can count on your fellow alcoholics to deflate your ego. <laughs> you can count on it. I met a gal here from Canada, and she saw me. She saw that I was talking here. She didn't know, and she looked, and she says, I came all the way from Canada to listen to you? <laughs> you can count on your... I, 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 was, uh, I got uh, called... Uh, last year, I got called from uh, a city in Canada up in Ottawa, uh, a ways from our home, and a fellow phoned me and asked me if I would come and, and take part in their convention. And I said to him, I said, is your conference at the Crown Plaza Hotel? He said, yeah. I said, you just have the one convention there a year? He said, yeah. I said, well, listen, I said, I think it's only fair that I, I tell you that uh, I spoke at your conference, I think, maybe, maybe five years or so ago. He said, really? I said, yeah. He says, well, I've been on that committee for ten years. He said, I don't remember you. <laughs> 
I said, well, I have that effect on people. I said, listen, I said, why don't you do this? Why don't you go to the committee and ask the committee? I said, I'm more than happy to come, but it might just be too soon. So check with the committee. Whatever they want to do is good with me. He says, I'll call you back in a couple days. He calls me back a couple days. He says, listen, what you said, I talked to the entire committee. Nobody remembers you. That's probably the way it should be, shouldn't it? <laughs> That's a good thing. Anyway, this has been good. I, I, I am happy to be here, as I said. Alcoholics, I'm, I'm, well, alcoholics don't always get where they're going. <laughs> Drinking alcoholics seldom get where they're going. But sometimes even sober alcoholics don't get where they're going. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Uh, I was going, well, let me just first of all say this. There was a time in my life I was not allowed in the United States of America. And let me add, nor should I have been. They said, we have enough people like you here already. We don't need to import them. <laughs> so I applied, applied to the United States Department of Justice for a waiver that would allow me to come into your country. I have it. It's, it's at, at the hotel room right now. It is a beautiful piece of paper, if you want to see it. Beautiful, Wayne. The, the, the United States Department of Justice has my name on it and allows me to come into the USA on humanitarian grounds. I don't even know what that means. So anyway, when I come here, I have to show it every time. When we drove through, I had to show it this weekend and stuff. And uh, so uh, when I got that, I don't know about you, but I from time to time can misplace things. So when I got that waiver, I made 25 photocopies, just in case. So anyway, I got the thing and stuff. And when I'm coming to the United States of America, they want to know where I'm going. Now, they don't want to know that I'm coming, you know, to Illinois. They want to know the address of where I'm going for some reason. So anyway, I get all my gear and uh, I, I'm getting packed up and I'm looking. I can't find my waiver. I said to my ex-wife, I said, where's my waiver? Like it's her job to know where my waiver is. She said, I don't know, Butch, it's wherever you've put it. I said, no, it's not. You've lost it. <laughs> she said, listen, take one of the photocopies, get going, you're going to miss your flight. So I get all my gear, I get to the airport, and I'm going through customs. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. Our custom agents do a wonderful job protecting our borders. God bless them. But I think when those guys and gals go to custom agent school, they teach them how not to smile. Serious bunch. So anyway, I go there, and I've got all my gear, and, and I get up to the thing, I give him my passport, my boarding pass, and I give him my waiver. He says to me, he says, what are you, a criminal? I thought, here we go. I said, well, perhaps you might have said that at one time. He says to me, he says, this is a photocopy. I said, yes, sir, the original's at home for safekeeping. <laughs> Lies just fall out of my mouth. I didn't have to think about that. I have to think about the truth. Lies just come natural. He says to me, he says, you can't travel on a photocopy. He said, do you have your I-94 form? I pulled out a form. He says, that's the wrong form. He said, go over there, fill out the other form. He says, you've got to go talk to somebody about this photocopy because you can't travel on a photocopy. I thought, I'm not going to Illinois today. So I go over and I fill out this thing and I got one of those keen alcoholic minds that we hear about in AA. And I wait till somebody's in his line and I see a more gentle man, like Scott. And I go over to his line. So I go over there, I give him all my stuff. He says to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Illinois. He says, what's your purpose of business? I said, I'm going to talk at a conference, Alcoholics Anonymous. He says to me, what address are you staying at? I forgot to get the address. I said to the guy, I said, uh, I said, I don't know. He said to me, you don't know where you're going? I said, no, sir. I said, but it's okay because somebody's going to pick me up at the airport and take me there. He says to me, who's picking you up at the airport? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, let me get this straight. Somebody you don't know is picking you up, taking you somewhere you don't know where you're going. 
I said, yes, sir. He says to me, what did you say you're going to do again? I said, I'm going to talk at a conference, Alcoholics Anonymous. He says to me, what are you going to talk about? And before I could answer him, he says to me, hold it. He says, you don't know. <laughs> so I'm happy to be here this morning. <laughs> On September the 21st, 1989, two men came and took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have not had a drink since that night. I know that's not everybody's experience. I know a lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous and return to drinking and come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I know a lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous, return to drinking a number of times and come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I know a lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous, return to drinking and never come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. But that was my experience and I realized that I've been richly blessed because of it. I'm also a guy who's liked coming to AA almost from my first, day, my first meeting. I've just always loved coming here. I love going to conferences. I like going to meetings, service days, assemblies. Work. I've just liked coming. And again, I realize I'm very fortunate to have that experience. That's not everybody's experience. A lot of people come to Alcoholics Anonymous. They ain't too happy about being here. <laughs> Some of them for a long time. But that was my experience, and I realized I've been richly blessed since coming here. So I have no regrets since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> well, I do have one. <laughs> that is that I didn't get to drink with some of you people. <laughs> Haven't you ever thought that? Huh? I saw that girl dancing around up here. I thought I'd like to have done a little drinking with that girl. Either drinking or marrying her, I don't know, one or the other. Huh? I've met some characters here. I have met some characters. I've, well, I'll tell you, I went to talk at a thing up in northern Canada one time at a, a small conference up there, and I, and I went up there. On a Saturday morning, I got up and I went to the uh, restaurant to have some breakfast. I picked up the local paper. I like to read about the community I've been invited to come to. Only seems fitting. And I'm sitting there and I'm having some breakfast and I'm reading this paper and on the front page of the paper there was an article. There was a man, they had arrested him coming across the Canadian-American border drunk on a stolen street sweeper. <laughs> and my immediate thought was, I like that little drinking with that guy. Huh? I was, uh, I was 25 years old and my wife had thrown me out of our home. And I want to tell you that I loved her. I loved her very much. I had a new address every night. I lived in the apartment, uh, I lived in stairwells of apartment buildings in downtown Toronto. Every night I just went from building to building. I had a new address each night. And at nighttime I would be under that stairwell and the daytime I was like a rat in a sewer. Out on the streets looking to score, looking to scam, looking to hustle to get the money I needed to get to do the things I needed to do. I hear people in Alcoholics Anonymous talk about AA luggage, matching green garbage bags. <laughs> I didn't have any AA luggage. Had the clothes on my back. Still had an ultra suede jacket, though. Going to be cool at any expense. If I was any cooler, I'd have froze to death. I'm 25 years old, I'm living in stairwells, I got the clothes on my back, and nobody, nobody wants anything more to do with me. And let me add right now, nor should they. Because you see, alcoholics of my type are users and takers. I use and I take from everybody I come in contact with. Now, it doesn't always appear that way, because I'm a people pleaser. I want you to like me. I'm the guy in the bar buying drinks for everybody, passing the bag around, everybody's friend, good old butch. Let me tell you something, the only reason I ever did anything for anyone was so you liked me. I couldn't care less if you lived or died made no difference to me. I'm a user and I'm a taker. And let me tell you who I use and take from most, the people who love me, my own family. Because see, they can't stop giving and they keep trying. 
one more time, one more detox, one more, this time it's going to work. And they keep giving and giving, and I keep taking and taking, till eventually I break their hearts. And the very people who love me most got to push me aside, because they can't take it any longer. And that's where I was. I'm 25 years old. I'm in the east end of Toronto one night. I'm all jacked up and nowhere to go, as I said. And my wife and I owned a home in the beaches of Toronto down near the lakefront. And we had a screened-in porch with a couple of wicker couches on it. And I thought, I'm going to slip into that porch and get a couple hours before she wakes up. Well, I pass out. And I wake up to one of these. And I opened my eyes and looked, and there was that little gal that I loved. And she looked at me with disgust and pity. And she said, Butch, you're a useless piece of scum, and you are never going to change. And if you cared anything about me at all, you'll get up and get out of here, and please don't ever come back, because I can't stand to look at you the way you are. And I got up and I left there, and I walked down what they call the boardwalk, down on the lakefront. And it was July or August, it was a hot, hot summer day, and I am sick, and I'm hungover, and I'm dirty, and I'm heartsick. And I walked down there, and I'm sitting on that park on a park bench. And over where these guys are sitting, there was another bench, and there was a little boy sitting on that bench, five or six years old, eating a popsicle. And I looked over at the little boy, and you know what I thought to myself? Wish I had a dime for a popsicle. The big shot. The guy in the bar buying everybody drinks, the dope dealer, everybody's friend, sitting on a park bench wishing he had a dime for a popsicle. Nobody on the face of this earth wanting anything more to do with him. And here's the thought that I had at that moment. I knew that that park bench in places like it was where I was going to end back up every single time. I have always been a talker. I've always been a hustler and a scammer. I knew I'd put a deal together. I'd rip somebody off. I'd get the money I needed to get. I always did. But I knew at that moment that that park bench in places like it was where I was going to end back up every single time. And I knew it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I was 25 years old. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 33. I had eight more years on those streets. And I will not bore you with the, the details this morning, because if you're an alcoholic of my type, you already know. It never gets better. It always gets worse. And I had eight more years on those streets. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 33, and I joined a group. And I got a sponsor. And I did the things you people told me to do. Forget this suggested crap. The stuff you told me to do. You know where I was last year, maybe the year before? Huh? I was in Rome, Italy. Rome, Italy. Standing in the Sistine Chapel, looking at the paintings of Michelangelo from 500 years ago. And the tears started to pour down my face. And I thought of that kid sitting on a park bench wishing he had a dime for a popsicle. It's a long way from that park bench to the Sistine Chapel in Rome, isn't it? It is a long way from where you and I came from. Many of us, the dredges of society. Many of us, our own families didn't even want us around any longer. Yet here we sit this weekend, members of Alcoholics and Al-Anon living good, full, productive lives. How do we get... How do we get from where we were to where we sit this morning? How does that happen for people like you and I? Because it's not supposed to. But you and I know how it happens, don't you? And it only happens one way, and that is through the grace of God. Through the grace of God. Through the grace of God that you and I have been introduced to through the 12 Steps Alcoholics Anonymous and the Fellowship Alcoholics Anonymous, we are richly blessed people, and you sure want to believe that I am happy to be here and be a part of this this weekend. I, uh, I like drinking. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I like to drink. I sometimes think people in AA think it's sacrilegious to say they like drinking, for God's sakes. Huh? I hear people get up to the front of these rooms and say things like, Drinking took me places I didn't want to go. Really. Doing things I didn't want to do. With people I didn't want to be with. And I'm thinking to myself, why'd you bother? I wanted to be with those people, in those places, doing those things. I love drinking. I started to drink at an early age. I hear people talk about dysfunctional families in Alcoholics Anonymous. Was my family dysfunctional? I have absolutely no idea. Let me just tell you, it wasn't the Cleaver residents around my home. 
There was lots of parties in my home, lots of drinking in my home. As a little boy, they let me play bartender. I could take them beers and take away the empties, and they'd let me have swigs. And they'd say, isn't he cute? <laughs> and I loved that attention. So I started to drink when I was four years old. Now, <clears throat> I wasn't a daily drinker when I was four. <laughs> my allowance wouldn't allow it. I actively sought out alcohol. I was 12 or 13 years old. I got a guy to go into a liquor store, get us a couple of bottles of wine. I was going to be a wine connoisseur. Two bottles of Four Aces. <laughs> Canadians here. I think you would compare it to what you call Thunderbird here in your country. Huh? <laughs> I'll tell you, any wine I ever drank had a cap, not a cork. Right? We drank the wine, got drunk, puked, and passed out. That was the end of my social drinking. All downhill from there. I'm a barroom drinker. I love bars. I don't identify with closet alcoholics. You know, you hear them, they get the bottle, go in and lock the door, put on the country western music. I don't identify. Doesn't mean they're not alcoholic, just drank differently than me. I'm a barroom drinker. I love bars. I like opening the door to a bar. Huh? Oh, that smoke would billow out, the tinkle of glass, the smell of stale urine. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and I like neon. I like neon when I was drinking. I still like neon. That's why I stare to those casinos. They're not good for guys like me. And i got to tell you, I thank God I, I never tried to get sober in the United States of America. I don't think of it have made it. God, I love drinking in your country. I love that here. You've got many more here than we have home in Canada. I call them juke joints. You know those divey little rat hole bars you see? Those divey little joints with a neon sign that says cocktails. Oh, beautiful. I was on my way to a, an AA thing in Pennsylvania a number of years ago. My ex-wife and I decided to drive. And we're driving through this little town in the middle of nowhere. I'm driving down the main street, and I hammer on the brakes to my car. I'm backing my car up. She said, Butch, what are you doing? I said, i got to see this again. Oh. And there it was, this divey little rat hole bar with a neon sign. said, stop for one, stay till one. <laughs> oh. If I'd have been drinking, I'd have had that tattooed on me. I love that drinking. I love that lifestyle. I loved everything about it. And I'm not going to talk any more about my drinking this morning other than to very quickly share with you what drinking does to and for an alcoholic of my type. It is important that we talk about our drinking in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous for the purpose of identification. A little heads up to anybody that's new here, and I sure hope there's still some new people here this morning, that you're going to hear some people get up here and say things like, I don't like drunkalogs. When you hear that, buckle up. You're about to listen to 50 minutes of drinking. It is important that we talk about our drinking in Alcoholics Anonymous in a general way for the purpose of identification. So that you can identify with me as an alcoholic. That is the greatest tool that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's what makes Alcoholics Anonymous work. That's why Alcoholics Anonymous works for alcoholics. Other programs work for other problems. We have to have that identification. And it is important that we talk about our drinking in AA. But I've come to believe in Alcoholics Anonymous, it doesn't matter if I'm drinking Don Perignon or Aqua Shave. It doesn't matter if I'm drinking in the Fairmont Hotel or under a bridge in a box. It's what drinking does to me that's important, and that's what I very quickly want to share with you this morning. The things that I'm going to share with you, I was not thinking of them when they were happening. I saw them in hindsight. I saw them in inventory. I saw them as you took me back through my life in recovery. But I remember being a young boy in school, 10 years old, 12, I don't know, a little boy. And I would be in that classroom and the teacher would be at the front of the class and she'd ask a question and she'd start looking around the classroom to see who she was going to ask to answer that question. And my head goes down like this. Oh, don't let her ask me. Because I know if she makes eye contact with me, she's asking me to answer the question and I don't want to answer the question. It doesn't even matter if I know the answer to the question, I don't want to answer the question. And when I went to school, we used to have to do book report. Get up in front of a whole classroom full of kids. Oh, no good. No good. I get up in the morning, I'd say, Ma, I've been puking all night, I'm sick, I can't go to school today. Ma, please don't make me go. 
Because I want to tell you something. I would be terrified, absolutely terrified, at the thought of getting up in front of that classroom full of kids. Every decision I ever made in my life was based on fear. Most of it unfounded and ungrounded. Where I go, what I do, all based on a comfort level. Every now and then I'd get goofy and say to my wife on a Sunday, I've quit drinking. Do you ever get stupid like that? You know immediately you've made a mistake. And I'd tell her on a Sunday that I'd quit drinking and I'd have to go to a wedding that following Saturday. You ever go to a wedding sober? That's a bad deal. That is a bad deal for me. I would be at that church sweating, thinking about that dance that's going to happen in three hours. I'm back at that reception and that dance is going to start and I don't have anything in me and I'm telling you something. My hands are sweaty. I've got a knot in the pit of my gut. I feel awkward and out of place and it's absolutely horrible. And I have to do one of two things. I've got to get over to that bar and get a couple drinks in me or I've got to get out of there because I can't stand the way I feel. Every decision I make is based on fear. And do you want to know what kills an alcoholic like me? I don't even know I'm afraid. I think I'm afraid of nothing, and I'm afraid of everything, and I don't even know it. We talk an awful lot in meetings I go to, maybe you go to, to discussion meetings. Uh, let's discuss resentments tonight. <laughs> I prefer to call it hate. Now, I know you're not that sick in Akron, but in Canada we are. Hate. I'm the type of alcoholic, I'm out driving in my car, I'm at a red light now, and I'm on the nod, and that light would turn green and the guy behind me lays on his horn. Whoa. I almost go through the roof of my car. I want to get out of my car, go back there, open the door, drag him out by the throat, take a crowbar and crack his skull open. <clears throat> I know you spiritual giants never thought thoughts like that. But I do. I'm not talking anger management here. <laughs> I'm talking a white rage. I'm talking a white rage that I don't have a minute before and I don't have a minute after. But I'm talking about a rage that I have inside of me that comes out every now and then and I have absolutely no control over it. And I say things and do things to people I never wanted to do. And let me tell you who takes the brunt of my rage if you're a people pleaser like me. It happens behind closed doors. It happens at home. Because, see, I'm the guy in the bar needing everybody to like him. So you don't display that rage out there. You keep it for the people who already care about you. Because, see, I have their approval. I don't need theirs. I need yours. Lonely. I'm 25 years old. I'm staying at a subway platform in downtown Toronto on a Friday night. And a subway train pulled up and the doors opened. And a young couple my age got off that train holding hands. And they walked off into the night laughing and smiling. And I saw that couple, and God, I felt sad. I thought, why can't I be like those people? Why can't I just be like other people? Why is all the trouble got to keep happening? I remember walking through a nice residential area on a warm summer's night. I'd walk down that street, and it'd just be getting dark out, and I'd see the nice homes there, and I'd see the television on side, and the families in there. And God, I feel like crying. Why can't I just have a nice home and family like other people? Why is all this trouble got to keep happening in my life? All this stuff all the time going on. I just like to be like other people. From as long as I can ever remember, I was restless, irritable, and discontented. If I was drinking at this bar, I'd say, guys, drink up, let's go over to the other bar. If we're at this party, I'd say, guys, drink them up, let's go over to the other party. If I'm married to you, I should be married to her. Never quite right. And I don't know what it was like for you, but I'll tell you, I get one of those double vodkas or whatever I was doing that day, and it was just like this. I don't know if you remember that or not. Here, here, it's like this, here. I get goosebumps. I did that in a meeting one night, two guys got up and left. They remember the feeling. You should see when I do that at detox. Oh, they're on the ceiling. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'll tell you something. I have a couple of those double vodkas. And let me tell you something. Those sweaty hands would go away. That knot in my gut would subside. The rage would vanish. The loneliness would disappear. And I'd walk into that wedding like I own the joint. And I am moving and grooving. And I'm talking to the ladies, and I'm sitting around with my buddies, and we're drinking and snorting and carrying on. And at that moment, 
everything in my life is absolutely perfect. And my perception of reality changes. And I get an immediate sense of ease and comfort. And that's why I drink alcohol, because I like the effects produced by it. But I'm alcoholic. And something happens to me that only happens to one out of every ten people when I start drinking called a phenomenon of craving. And I can't seem to stop. And I go out and I, I go out for a couple of drinks, I drink 60 ounces of vodka, and I smash up my car. I go uh, after work for a few beers with the guys, I go on a four-day bender, I'm getting fired from my job. I tell my wife I'm going out for a loaf of bread, I run into Wayne, I come home six months later, my wife's leaving. I'm out there drinking, partying, carrying on, I don't have any money, I don't want to stop, so I'm stealing yours. Now I'm going to jail. And what everybody focused on in my life was the crash cars, the broken marriages, lost jobs, going to jail. We looked at drinking. We never looked at alcoholism. And people told me from the time I was 18 years old, Butch, if you just quit drinking and sticking needles in your arms, kid, you'd be okay. And there was times I wasn't drinking, and guess what? I wasn't okay. I'm crazier sober than I ever was when I drank. <laughs> But all those well-meaning people could see was that when I drank, the trouble that followed. So naturally, they said, stop drinking. But those well-meaning people had no idea how I felt when I was sober. How could they know? I didn't even know. I would love to stand up here this morning and tell you I woke up one morning, the finance company was dying to lend me money. Work was thinking of promoting me. And my wife was sending me flowers. And I thought, I think I'll join AA today. Huh? Every now and then I hear some moron from the front of one of these rooms say things like, if you're not here for the right reasons, you might as well drink. And every now and then I'd like to get the tire iron back out. <laughs> the right reasons? Did you come to Alcoholics Anonymous for the right reasons? I come to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had nowhere else to go. My boss called me into work on a Tuesday. He said, Butch, you're a very hard worker. I said, well, thank you. He said, but you're not here much. I felt he was being picky. He said, do you think you might have a problem with alcohol? I said, no, but I know what the problem is. He said, maybe you'd share that with me. I said, it's my health. He said, really? I said, yeah, now granted, my poor health may have something to do with my drinking. I'm going to quit drinking. My health's going to get better. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> He said, do you think you might need some help quitting drinking? I said, no, I'm just going to quit. Got up and left his office. Was to find out later his wife had been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for a number of years. Can you imagine the chuckle he had as I left? Huh? <laughs> He's just going to quit. That was Tuesday. I woke up Thursday in another hotel room in another town drunk. I didn't keep him waiting long. And for whatever the reason, this morning I knew the jig was up. I knew I was in trouble. I'd used all the lies. I don't know what that's about. Alcoholics are liars. I'd lie when the truth would serve me better. Pathological liar. I'm the type of alcoholic. I go out and play golf all by myself and cheat on the scorecard. I do. <coughs> that's not the best part. At the end, I look at the card and go, good game, watch. <laughs> I believe my own lies. So I know I've, I'm in trouble. I know I've got to come up with something good. I had a few tequilas. I turned my mind to it, and I thought, I know what I'll tell them. I'm alcoholic, and I'm going to go to AA. And that is how I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And if there is anybody here this morning who is new, we couldn't care less why you're here. We couldn't care less. We are just glad to see you. And maybe, maybe, by the grace of God, something someone will say, something you'll hear, something you'll read, and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous can happen in your life, and you can go on to live a happy and useful life, like so many men in Waverly. Just keep coming. And I started coming to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said in the beginning, I've been a blessed man since the day I come here. I have a deep, deep love, a deep, deep love in my heart for the old-timers.
Men and women who've been coming for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years. Who've made sacrifices and commitments so that this thing would be here for people like Dane and I. I love them from the bottom of my heart. And if you are new to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would urge you to get close to these men and women and learn from their experience because we're not going to have them with us forever. And I had some giants come into my life, none more than my own sponsor, Bobby Dobson. I've heard people in Alcoholics Anonymous say you should never put people on pedestals. Well, you do what you need to do. But let me tell you something. I have some people on pedestals, giants in this program. Never for a moment have I lost sight of their humanities. Do you want to know the greatest gift that my sponsor ever gave me? The greatest thing Bob ever did for me? It wasn't some profound thing that he showed me in the book. It wasn't some deep intellectual thing that he blessed me with. The greatest thing that my sponsor ever gave me and you continue to give me was he allowed me to see his warts. He allowed me to see him get afraid. He allowed me to see him get angry. He allowed me to see him get sad. He allowed me to see all of them. Because if he didn't, and you don't continue to, I will never measure up. We are much more brothers and sisters in our defects than we are in our virtues, aren't we? <laughs> I've heard people in Alcoholics Anonymous say, if you like your sponsor, you have the wrong sponsor. I hear that and I know I'm listening to an idiot. An idiot. I didn't like my sponsor. I loved them and I love my sponsor today. Very first people that helped me to understand what my problem was, because I don't know about you, but I had no idea. I had no idea what my problem was. I'd been told what my problem was. Lots of people told me. My parents told me. Police told me. Psychiatrists told me. All kinds of people told me what my problem was. Butch, just quit drinking. You were the very first people that said to me, Butch, drinking's not your problem. It's your solution. How you feel when you're sober is your problem. You are restless, irritable, and discontent, and you have to drink again. I don't have a choice whether I drink or not. I've lost the power of choice. That's what makes me alcoholic. I hear people all the time saying, I can't understand why Harry's drinking. What can't you understand? He's alcoholic. I have to drink again. I am powerless when it comes to alcohol. I am restless, irritable, and discontent. And at some point, I can only feel that way for so long. And eventually, I have to do one of two things. I don't have a choice. I have to do one of two things. Blow my brains out or drink again. Most of us drink again. Some go the other route. I had no idea, never knew that. Lack of power, you told me, was my dilemma, and that was the purpose of this book and our 12 steps. That through a series of actions, I could find a power that was greater than myself that would solve my problem. Incredible deal. Incredible deal. It was said here that uh, we, you told me what we have is a set of principles that are spiritual in their nature. And if I would practice them as a way of life, not talking about them, analyzing them, discussing them, but if I would start to live them as a way of life, would it remove the obsession for me to drink and get a load of this? Allow me to live happily and usefully whole. Incredible deal. You know all I ever wanted and all the mayhem that was going on in my life and all the destruction and all that, all that craziness, all I ever wanted? I just wanted to be okay. I just wanted to be all right. And you people told me you had a design for living, that you had a practical program of action, and if I would start to practice the way of life, allow me to live happily and usefully whole. Incredible thing. And you started to take me through this process, and we're not going to talk about that this morning, but I, I, used, I, was, I am the product of strong sponsorship, and I believe in strong sponsorship. And I believe if you are new in Alcoholics Anonymous, you will not make it in this program without sponsorship. You will not make it in this program. <clears throat> you said the only thing that was demanded of me here is rigorous honesty, huh? You also told me that I'm suffering from an illness that I can't differentiate the truth from the false. Let me just say that again. 
I've got an illness. I can't tell the, the truth from the false, and I'm in a program that demands rigorous honesty. <laughs> I'm in trouble. I need sponsorship. Huh? I sponsor a lot of guys. i got some guys here that I sponsor. And, and I'll tell you something. I can see when those guys are getting off track, I can see it in a minute. I can hear those little maggots when they're lying on the phone. I can hear it in their voice. Huh? I can spot it just like that. But it's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. I don't see it so clearly in myself. It's like there's a thin veil there. And I don't see it in me. That's why sponsors need sponsors. Huh? <clears throat> And you took me through this process. You took me through this thing. You know, and, and, and you helped me to understand what the problem was. You took me through the inventory. You helped me see the things that were keeping me from, from the sunshine. Because I had no idea. Absolutely none. You know, you, you'd, if you'd have said to me when I came to Alcoholics, the day I came to Alcoholics, and this, what, what sort of a guy are you? Do you know what I'd have said to you? I'd have said, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. And you could have hooked me up to a lie detector test, and that needle wouldn't have budged. Let me tell you why I believe that. Because I judge myself by my intentions. My intentions were always good. Unfortunately, the world and the universe judges us by our actions. You told me that selfishness and self-centeredness was the root of my problem. There was lots of visible problems. When I looked and saw I was a lying, cheating thief, that was not news to me. I knew that, but I had no idea how full of resentment and hate I was. I had no idea how full of fear I was. I had no idea that every decision I made in my life was based on self. I didn't know. Had absolutely no idea. Selfishness and self-centeredness, you told me. And you told me that is what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. It's about change. It's about starting to change. And the changes start small and they start to grow. And you taught me the basic fundamentals of Alcoholics Anonymous. You taught me about joining a home group. You taught me about being a responsible member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You taught me about three legacies. You taught me about our traditions. You encouraged me to read Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers and pass it on and AA comes of age. If you're going to spend your life here, Butch, understand and learn where our traditions came from. Look where we came from. Don't you want to know the sacrifices were made for this thing so you could be here? And you taught me the basic fundamentals. You taught me things like we want you to come to the meeting early, go to the washroom, get your coffee, sit down and be quiet. Maybe you don't want to listen to what's going on in that meeting, but maybe those gentlemen sitting there would like to. And for once in your life, Butch, why don't you think of somebody else other than yourself? It's true. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd been on the street since I was 13 years old. I had a sewer for a mouth. I didn't know any other way to talk. And nobody embarrassed me in an AA meeting. Nobody centered me out or put me down. But after the meeting with love, you took me aside. And you said, kid, this isn't some juke joint bar room you're sitting in now. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a classy organization of ladies and gentlemen. And we don't talk that way in AA. And maybe that filthy language doesn't bother you, but maybe it bothers that gentleman sitting there. And for once in your life, Butch, why don't you think of somebody else other than yourself? And you took me through this process, and it's been an incredible journey. You know, you taught me about amends. You taught me about cleaning up the past, to allow me to have that freedom, to look you in the eye, to not have to look around looking at my shoes. You gave me peace. You gave me all these things. An incredible thing that I just do this to give new people hope. A thing that's been very important sometimes the longer I am in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. If you said to me that it is easy to let up in a spiritual program action. I've listened to people debate for 45 minutes in a meeting whether they were recovered or recovering. Smoke starts coming out my ears. Semantics. But you showed me in the book where it says it is easy to let up in a spiritual program and rest on our laurels. And if we do, we're headed for trouble. Because we are not cured of alcoholism. Not cured. 
What I have is a daily reprieve that's contingent upon the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes the longer I am in Alcoholics Anonymous, the harder it is for me to be truthful with you. Sometimes the longer I am in Alcoholics Anonymous, the harder it is for me to come to you and tell you I'm dying inside and I don't know what to do. Will you help me? Because, you see, I've been sober for a while. I'm an active member and I want you to think I have it all together. Sometimes the longer I am in Alcoholics Anonymous, the easier it is for me to become critical and judgmental. I know you wouldn't do that here in Akron. Look what they're doing over at that meeting. Look what that couple's doing, huh? Sometimes the longer I'm here. So it, 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 my spiritual condition is maintained here with you doing the things I need to do in Alcoholics Anonymous today. I cannot stay sober today and spiritually fit because I used to be a GSR. I cannot stay spiritually fit today because I used to go to the detox. I cannot stay spiritually fit today because I used to make coffee at my home group. I cannot stay sober today because I used to go to the jail. I stay sober today by taking the actions that I'm taking in my life today, a day at a time. When did we start? And the great paradox, Alcoholics Anonymous, you told me if I want to keep it, I've got to give it away. Huh? You showed me in the book where it says nothing. Nothing ensures us immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. When all else fails, this works. You showed me in the book where it says the occasional good deed is not enough. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depends upon our constant thought of others. And unless we continue to enlarge and perfect on our spiritual life through unselfish acts and helping others, we will surely drink when we hit those certain low spots. And if you're blessed enough to stay in Alcoholics Anonymous, my dear friends, guess what? You're going to hit some certain low spots. Huh? The great thing, we've got to give it away if we want to keep it. You know, if we were to ask the people in the room today, how's your life since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous? You know the answers we hear, don't you? Absolutely incredible. We could ask that question anywhere all over the world and we get the same answers. We've been blessed, richly blessed. If that wasn't enough, you and I are given the ability to help another human being to help another alcoholic. Don't you like what it says in our book that alcoholics laugh at sometimes seemingly tragic situations? Huh? Have you ever, I don't know if you do this at home, but at home in Canada when we celebrate our AA birthdays, you can uh, pick your own speaker and, you know, some family may come, some visitors. People never been to AA before. Have you ever sometimes wondered what some of those people might be thinking? Huh? Some monkey like me gets up here and says things like, Yes, I bought a brand new Cadillac, picked it up at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning and totaled it at 10. We all laugh. Huh? Michael talked about uh, driving naked in a stolen police car. We all laugh. Huh? I got a buddy in California, Doug, talks about spilling a bottle of whiskey in his bed and then sucking it out of the sheets. We all laugh. Huh? You ever wonder what those visitors might be thinking? It says we laugh at sometimes seemingly tragic situations. Know what it says after that? Of course you do. You read the book. It says, why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? Because we have recovered and been given the power to help others. You and I, when properly armed with facts about ourselves and armed with this solution... We're able to make the difference in a few short hours when nobody else was able to. An incredible gift we've been given. Incredible gift. Huh? <clears throat> My life before coming to Alcoholics Anonymous had absolutely no meaning or no purpose to it whatsoever. I have no idea what your life was like. It's none of my business. But mine had none. I was either drunk, planning on getting drunk, recovering from being drunk. I was in trouble, trying to get out of trouble, planning on more trouble. My life focused around drinking and partying. I worked all week so I could get drunk all weekend. My life and all the people in my life were the same. Alkies don't hang out with social drinkers. No meaning, no purpose. I go to a detox at home uh, a couple times a week. Not, it's not my job. I don't do it because I'm some saint. I do it because it's the way I've been taught. Again, I'm a product of strong sponsorship. And I go there, and I like to go Sunday mornings if I'm home. There's a meeting going on. A guy sponsors getting his 35th birthday this morning. 
Anyway, I, I go there and, and, and I like to take people. To, we have a big speaker meeting, about 250 people every Sunday morning. And I like to take new people to speaker meetings so they can listen. I happen to think new, it's good for new people to listen. I know it's not that fashionable today, but I happen to think it's good. So anyway, I, uh, I, go, I, I go there one Sunday to get the guys, and there's a guy there, and he is in bad shape. I'm not talking hungover bad or detoxing bad. I'm talking physically bad, bad shape. I thought, this guy might die. He's that sick. Well, I figured he could die at the meeting as easy as he could die at the detox. Dying's dying. You've got to do it somewhere. So I took him. We took in a nice speaker meeting. After the meeting, we spent an hour or so together talking about this design for living, this practical program of action. And I left him. I never saw him again. I'm sitting in a meeting one day. I see this guy walking across the room. I can see he's headed for me. Clean-cut looking guy. Had a shirt, pair of slacks on. He came walking over. He said, Butch, he said, you probably don't remember me. I said, I'm sorry. I can't say that I do, but I meet a lot of people. He says, my name's Ziggy. I went, holy smokes. That's not really what I said. That's what I'm saying here. He says to me, he says, you remember me? I said, oh, I remember you. And it's the guy. And he's looking good. He said, Butch, I just wanted to come and thank you for taking me to that meeting that morning. He said, I haven't had a drink since that morning. It's almost been a year. I said, well, congratulations. He said, I was wondering if I can ask a favor of you. I said, if I can do it, I will. He says, will you come and talk at my one-year AA birthday? I said, I'd be honored to do that. I went to talk at a meeting last summer. I got up to a big room full of people like this. Not this big, but big room full of people. And I couldn't get going. I started crying. I just started to cry. I couldn't get rolling. And I'll tell you why. I looked out, and there sitting at the front table in a suit and tie. Looking like a million bucks with his wife and all his children was Ziggy. And he was getting his 15-year medallion. <clears throat> Took him to his first meeting. I talked at his one, talked at his five, talked at his ten, talked at his fifteen. You think my life doesn't have meaning? You think my life doesn't have purpose? My life is so rich and so full. I could stand up here for the next two hours. I'd be all alone, but I could do her. <laughs> Talking to you about things that have happened in my life since I came to this program and surrendered to you. Huh? Incredible thing. Everything in my life that is good, anything that I ever hope to be, is because of you. I got a little gal with me that in three weeks' time I'm going to marry. Huh? I live a life beyond anything I ever, ever dreamt possible. We got two more minutes, Dane? Two minutes. I'm taking them anyway, just so I'd be nice to ask. Two minutes, I promise. I want to just touch on something we talk about at many meetings I go to. I think many meetings you... I think the most talked about thing in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. I think if we could take a survey and find out what we talk about more than anything else, you know what it would be, don't you? Anybody have a topic tonight? Oh, let's discuss gratitude. My sponsor told me gratitude is an action, not a thought. Don't tell me how great we are, but show me. Show me. And I want to tell you this morning that I'm extremely grateful just to be grateful. Because before coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was never grateful for a single thing in my life. No matter what I had. If I had a new car, I wanted a bigger car. If I had a house, I wanted a newer house. If I had a job, I wanted a different job. It didn't matter what I had in my life. I always wanted more or different. Didn't know the meaning of gratitude. I had that opportunity, as I said a number of years ago, to go to 855 Ardmore Avenue, Dr. Bob's home, and I sat there with my sponsor, and the tears started to pour down my face with a sense of gratitude beyond anything I've ever known. You see, every single thing, as I said, in my life is because of you. And you want to know something? If I lived to be a thousand years old, I could never pay you back. And you want to know the kicker to this thing? 
You've never asked me to. You've never asked me for a single solitary thing since the day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. You have merely suggested to me, although at times strongly, that I try to give a little bit back of what's so freely been given to me. Take a new guy to a couple of meetings. Show him some love and kindness. Maybe give him a hug and tell him he's going to be okay. I don't know how you feel about that, but it seems like a terribly small price for what's been given to me. I had some people say to me one time, they said, what you talk a lot about gratitude when you're talking. I couldn't help but notice you had a new car out in the parking lot. Business going pretty good. Things are pretty good in your life. How grateful would you be if they weren't? And that's a real fair question, isn't it? Pretty easy to be grateful when our lives are going along well. Well, that sponsor and I that I talked about, he, were about as close, he and I are about as close as two human beings could be. And he continued to age and get on and stuff. And Bob had emphysema. His, uh, his breathing was very bad. He was on oxygen all the time. And, and uh, he'd been in the hospital twice that month. And he was to go talk a couple hours from our house at a young gal's one-year birthday. And it was in the middle of the summer, and it was hot and humid up. And I phoned him. I said, Bobby, I said, I'm going to call Cliff and Mary and tell them we can't make it tonight. It's hot in that room. You're not well. They would not want you to come. He said, oh, no kid. He said, that young gal, she's expecting us. We're going to be there. Well, I went and I, and I picked him up and, and, I, and I had an SUV and I loaded. He had oxygen tanks, wheelchairs, hoses. I had more stuff than the paramedics have. <laughs> Load him in that truck and we make a two-hour drive to the meeting. There was no wheelchair access, so the boys put him in the chair and carried him down the stairs in the chair. We got him up in the front of that room. We plugged him in. And he gave a talk with everything he had. He gave it everything. And at the end, he was done. Oh, man, he was spent. And the boys, we got them all unhooked and the stuff, and they, they loaded them into the truck, and he and I headed up the highway for a two-day drive, or two-hour drive home. And he looked over at me, he said, Kid, he said, I'm awfully glad you were with me tonight. Well, we were always together. We went everywhere together for 15 years. I said, Well, I'm real glad I was with you too, Bobby. He said, No, Kid, he said, I'm really glad you were with me tonight. He says, I think I just gave my last talk. Now, you have to understand that my sponsor, we have a lot of speaker meetings in Canada, and he talks somewhere between 100 and 150 AA meetings a year for 45 years. I said, Bob, I said, you're just tired. You're going to feel better tomorrow. And I got him home, and I got him upstairs, and, and I was going to leave. He said, Kitty, said, do you have a couple minutes? I said, I have all the time in the world. He said, I just want to look in my journal. And he got his journal, and he looked, he said, it's okay, kid. He said, you can go home. He says, the journal's empty. That's the first time that journal had been empty in 45 years. That was on June the 8th. June the 9th, I called him. He was feeling a wee bit better and talked. And the next day on June the 10th, AA's birthday, I phoned him at supper time and I didn't get an answer. And, and I waited a half an hour and I called back and I didn't get an answer again. And you know when you know and you don't want to know. And I drove around for a couple hours because I just didn't want to go see what I knew I was going to see. And I picked up a young guy that I was sponsoring. I said, come on, we've got to go to the old guy's place. And I was crying. He said, what? He said, what's wrong? I said, the old guy's gone. He said, how do you know? I said, because it's June the 10th and the journal's empty. And we went to the condo and they, they let us in. And there was that little man and he was kneeling beside his bed, face down, and he was gone. And God, it was like somebody unzipped me and took out my heart. I felt a loneliness and an emptiness at that moment that I hadn't felt in a long, long time. And the police came and the, and the, and the coroner and all those people came that got late into the night. And finally they finished and I drove home out to my home on the lake. Scott and Linda had been there. And I went and I sat down at the lake and I had a long cry. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you. That is not a sad story. I had 15 years with one of the giants in Alcoholics Anonymous. He had 46 years in this program that he loved. That is not a sad story. But there was a part of my life that had just changed forever and would never be the same again. And I missed them. And I had a long cry, and I get up from there, and I went upstairs to go to bed, and I knelt down beside my bed, and thank God for another day of sobriety. 
You see, my friends, Alcoholics Anonymous works in the good times and Alcoholics Anonymous works in the tough times. Alcoholics Anonymous works all the time. In those darkest hours, when we feel like our heart's going to break in two and we can't make it through another day, that's when the men and women in this program and a power that you and I have been introduced to through the 12 steps will pick you up and carry you home. Dana, I want to thank you for the opportunity and privilege of being here. I want to thank you people for your kindness and patience. You know, I don't know what's going to happen from here on in, and none of us know for sure, do we? See, that's called life. Just because we get sober and become members of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, life doesn't stop happening. People die. Relationships end. Businesses fail. People get sick. Life still goes on. But I'll tell you something. Every single morning for many years, including this morning, I say to my friend upstairs, I say, if you see fit, I sure would appreciate it if you keep me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because, my dear friends, there's no place in this whole world that I'd rather be this morning than right here with you in Akron, Ohio. Thank you, and God bless you.